In Nairobi, in the center of the city, there's a building. It's this grand building, quite majestic and quite juxtaposed to the buildings around it. And the very first thing that you see are these two gates, painted black, that have a chain on them. If you go through the gate, and then there are these big marble steps. Then big, magnificent stone lions and pillars which nod to the time that the building was put there. And then you see these beautiful wooden doors. And right at the top of those doors, you have a glass pane with the letter M in gold, which I suppose means Macmillan. And through those doors is a sort of journey into the past. I'm Wanjiro Koinange, known to my nearest and dearest as Shiro. And I am Angelo Oshuka. Welcome to A Palace for the People, a podcast about a library. So, do you want to start or shall I? At the very beginning. The very first time we saw the library. So, the very first time we saw the Macmillan Library, Washuka and I were looking for a space to hold a literary event. We were really bored of all the usual spaces and we wanted somewhere new, a public space. We had used all the bars, the restaurants, and we were like, mm-mm, we need something fresh. And so here we are in the CBD, which is the downtown area of Nairobi. And we had gone to every possible venue, but nothing was really working. And we thought, let's go and look at the old Macmillan Library. Maybe, we never know, there might be something there. I don't think either of us had ever been inside. I definitely had walked past it. I mean, it's right in the middle of the city. But I don't think I ever felt like, oh, that's a building I really want to go into. It looked closed. So on we went on this day looking for a space through that black gate, up those grand marble steps, past the stone lions and through that big heavy door. And it was a mess. There were chairs tucked everywhere, this big oversized furniture. The condition of the building was just not very good. It felt like being in a time machine. Big old-fashioned portraits and, oh my goodness, the kind of books. Who they were written by, when they were published. But it was also the first time we were seeing the beauty and potential of this building. Needless to say, we couldn't use that space for our event. There were no toilets, <laughs> there was no Wi-Fi, there were not enough power sockets, the roof was leaking, the walls were moldy. But the library kind of stuck in our minds on that day. We wondered why couldn't this grand space be a public library for Nairobians? And like, what does public space even mean in this city? And for both of us, a library just tugged at our imagination. By then, I had worked in publishing for close to a decade. And I am a writer and a lover of public space. And we kept thinking about this library and how valuable it could be for our larger Nairobi community. And as a writer, it was honestly difficult to imagine a world where I could keep on churning out these books for them to end up sitting in an old, dusty, abandoned building. 
I spent an hour every day when I was in primary school inside the library. That was honestly the best hour of my day. And to think that this access to storytelling and information and history has not been prioritized is just heartbreaking. And because books are so heavily taxed in Kenya, it's impossible to expect Kenyans to purchase books regularly. Mm. And me, I'm a complete nerd for Kenyan literature. Before BookBank, I had spent nearly 10 years publishing writing specifically by Africans. And this was the kind of work I yearned to see in libraries. But access to this kind of literature, access to these ideas and stories and minds, is often determined by access to cash and access to certain parts of the city and just generally monetized as an experience. And so we kept thinking that this spot could be our spot, a place for Nairobians to gather and read and be together. And we kept just going back. I think initially we were like, oh, can we donate some books? But it didn't feel like enough. And then it just became obvious. Good evening. Yay! Oh my God, I can't believe we're actually like doing this. It's happening. <laughs> it's lovely to see all of you today. Um, in October, on October 24th, 2017, Bookbank was born. So we founded Bookbank in 2017 with this monstrous task of transforming a Nairobi landmark into a living, breathing space for students and artists and writers and everything we ever dreamed of when we first walked up those steps. And we've been working on restoring some truly iconic public libraries since. The Macmillan Memorial Library on Banda Street and two of its branches in Makadara and Kalolemi, which is the eastern part of the city. And so we have been imagining that public libraries can be steered to become more than just repositories. We want to see them become these really active sites of knowledge production. We want people to share experiences in them. We want to see some cultural funk and leadership and information exchange. We see them as sites of heritage where there's tons of public art happening and, and memories being formed and they're becoming critical spaces in Nairobi and Kenya's creative economy ecology, which has always been Shiranai's universe, which brings us here. Hmm, here we are. So, now, over the next eight episodes, you guys are going to come with us as we delve into the history of the library and work out what's in its future. We're trying to build a palace for the people. The Macmillan Memorial Library was opened in June 1931, while Kenya was still under British colonial rule. It was created in memory of a white settler, Sir William Northrop Macmillan. And like most of the settler class in Kenya at that time, Northrop was American, not British. And he was drawn to Kenya, like so many men, by the promise to shoot animals. He arrived in Mombasa in 1904. There are many stories about Macmillan, and most of them start with his size. He was a very large man by all accounts, but the accounts vary and some of them say that he was up to seven feet tall. Some say that he had to turn sideways 
to walk through a door and that his belt had to be specialty made. But the story, the one we keep hearing over and over again, the one people tell us whenever we say that we're working on refurbishing the library that bears his name, the lions. <laughs> the lions. Those steps of the Macmillan Memorial Library are flanked by two massive stone lions. At the time when the library was built, lions were a very popular motif in Kenya and back in England. Even now, lions are popular in Nairobi. <laughs> what lions are you referring to, Ashuka? <laughs> okay. But these lions, the ones who sit, those guys outside the library, people tell us that they're an elaborate inside joke and a nod to a very drunken night. And also a diplomatic incident involving Northrop, an American president, and some lions. Lions have a special place in the Macmillan story. It was the desire to shoot a lion that brought Northrop to Kenya in the first place. That's Judy Aldrich, who wrote a book about Macmillan. We sat with her in the UK way back when the world was open. You'll hear more from her later. But what you need to know now is that once Northrop Macmillan had established himself in Kenya, he acquired 19,000 acres of land, an estate outside the city, and a townhouse in Nairobi. As you do. As one does. The house was in Shiromo, very close to where you used to work, actually. And it still stands today as part of the University of Nairobi. Macmillan and his wife would often lend out the Chiromo property to people passing through Nairobi. Like an Airbnb for colonialists? <laughs> That's a perfect description. Macmillan would put you up in the city and then organize your hunting trip in the country the next day. People actually credit this guy with being the one who pioneered safari tourism. I'm not sure if that's something you'd like to be known for pioneering, but hey. So, when U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt was making plans to come into the region, he reached out to his boy, Macmillan. My dear Northrop, I'm writing as myself and my son, Kermit, are planning a jolly trip to Kenya. Would you be able to receive us upon arrival in Nairobi? Looking forward to some great animal shooting. XOXO, Teddy. In 1909, Roosevelt and his son Kermit traveled to East Africa, mostly to send specimens back to the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., but also to have a good time. That Nairobi nightlife. Mm-hmm. So this one night, they are coming from a binge at Norfolk and going back home to Chiromo. To get this part of the story, we spoke to Owa. He's a writer and a blogger who researches different parts of Kenya's history. He says that one night, Teddy and Kermit were downing some drinks at the Norfolk. The same Norfolk in town? The very same one, opposite the National Theatre. It's now, what, the Fremont Norfolk? And I think it just recently shut down, actually. Anyway, when we were sorting through old newspapers and things at the library, we found this old ad from around the same time when Teddy Roosevelt was here. Do you want to hear it? I guess so. Gosh, you're so enthusiastic. Okay, so this is from August 1906. Stone built, tile roofed. <laughs> I guess that's what people are looking for in those days. <clears throat> the fashionable rendezvous of the Highlands. Good stabling, 
hot and cold baths in a billiard room. French chef, late of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. Terms, moderate. <laughs> so one night, Teddy and Kermit were at the fashionable rendezvous of the Highlands. And according to the legend, they got quite drunk. Lekowa said, this night they were staying at Macmillan's Chiroma house, which is not far from Norfolk. Actually, I looked it up. It's like 2, 2.3 kilometers. But somehow along the way, they got distracted. Of course, Nairobi now is full of big high-rises, wide avenues with offices and restaurants and government buildings. But back then, Nairobi was merely a smattering of establishments. Only a few were over two stories tall. And one of those places was the Koja Mosque. A true Nairobi icon that, of course, still stands today. Here's Owa with more on this. So the Koja Mosque exists today as a stone building, but at the time, um, Indians weren't allowed to build permanent buildings. So they'd built um, temporary ones. But anyway, it had um, two lions, two lion statues outside of it. And so this father Sandu, um, drunk as they are, as far from home as they are, um, decide to steal them. <laughs> so, as the story goes, Teddy and Kermit had noticed these lions before. And knowing their host's fondness for lions, they thought maybe they could bring them home for Northrop. How big were they? And, and how do they carry stone lions? Because I'm assuming they're the same size, like... You're talking about like the ones that stand outside the library today. Um, I think they must have been a lot smaller for these two guys to be able to lift them. Because they put them in their car, took them to Chiromo, to the house, and then placed them at either side of the fireplace. <laughs> Here's Judy again. She says there was some drama. The following morning, the lions were reported stolen and the news of the theft appeared in all the newspapers. Who had taken them? Nobody knew. And Northrop didn't realise, huh? That they were by his fireplace. According to Judy, a British official recognised the lions and also recognised what a diplomatic incident this would be if Roosevelt was found out to be the thief. It was most embarrassing. And to avoid a scandal involving the former US president, the official advised Northrop to bury them somewhere and not mention the incident. So to hide them, although there, there, you know, there would have been many other solutions, such as maybe leaving them somewhere outside at night or something. But for some reason, and I guess it's because of the reputation that Macmillan and his wife and Roosevelt and all that, all those, you know, the potential diplomatic mess it would have been, um, they decide to hide them. And they hide them by burying them in um, Old Sabuk. Hmm. That really does seem a bit extra. Like burying them in your home. Don't even think about, I don't know, say, putting them back where you found them? Come on, we know by now that that's not how these guys lived their lives. So, these lions were buried and all is forgotten, right? I suspect not. So this part of the story jumps in time. So in the 30s, when the old Sabuk farm that was once owned by the Macmillans at the beginning of the century is now owned by a different family. And this family, they're out minding their own business on their estate, and then suddenly they come upon these two statues. 
and they dig them out of the ground. <laughs> the lions. Uh-uh, not so quickly. Slow down, slow down. But there's a confusion. And the confusion is simply that there was a legend. Um, when Macmillan was alive in his early years um, in Kenya, which was the early 20th century, that on his way here, he had um, acquired two, two idols from Western Africa named Ju and Ja. Mm-hmm. So you're still with us, right? Apparently, Macmillan brought these statues to Nairobi and had been instructed by the person who sold them to him to keep them safe. Ati, they would protect him. But his wife, Lucy, mm-mm, she wasn't such a fan. Eventually, his wife got tired of hearing this legend and decided to bury them. Why is everyone burying caves? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't why? know, I don't know, Ashuka. <sighs> and then... Years later, Roosevelt and Camille steal the stone lions, and they're also buried on the same farm. But you must remember that this was a 19,000-acre farm. So essentially, the fact that there were two pairs of idols buried, so you can sort of see the legend closing its own loop. When the statues were unearthed, they were thought to be Jew and Ja. But they were, in fact, stolen lion number one and stolen lion number two. The lasting impact of that story is that there is a Juja town and a, a very big place called Juja. Essentially, tra- traverses Kikuyu land and a bit of Cumberland, at least on the Juja farm side. But it's not a name that makes sense in either language because it's not from either of them. And the, the story of the statues is always that Juja was you know, this name that the residents of the place, like, um, its original name, which some people still use, but barely, not officially, um, was Verua Darugo. Can't quite translate that, but um, it had a name. But Ju, Juja comes from Ju and Ja. And this name has existed ever since. Today, Juja is a landmark town about 30 kilometers north of Nairobi and it has about 150,000 residents. Okay, but wait. Um, Ju and Ja, where are they? Were they ever found? No, they were never found. Clearly, Lady Lucy buried them well. And after she buried them, maybe they were no longer doing their job of protecting Macmillan because he died abroad at sea. And that was exactly the thing they were supposed to protect him from. Do you reckon she felt guilty? Yeah. I like to think that she felt so guilty that she built this library in his honor and organized for the lions to be its most striking feature. The Macmillan Memorial Library was built a long time after Teddy and Kermit left Kenya in 1909. Years later, in 1925, Northrop Macmillan died, and the library, it's in the name, was intended as a memorial to him. Northrop didn't have any children, but his wife, Lucy, oversaw the project with financial help from the Carnegie Foundation of New York. In 1931, the doors opened to the public but not all the public. The library was gazetted in July 1933 with its own act, the Macmillan Memorial Library Act, which preserved the building. 
It remains the only building in Kenya protected by a specific act of parliament. And at the time, the library was reserved for the exclusive use of white European settlers. Still a really bitter pill to swallow. Pisses me off, quite frankly. Could you imagine building Nairobi's first library and not letting Kenyans in? Right? And now it's 90 years later. We have many complicated feelings about Macmillan. But we took on a library that's literally named in his memory. So we kind of got stuck with him. For now at least. Maybe forever. Who knows? So we wanted to know more about him. You know, better the devil you know and all of that. We are on the way to see Macmillan's farm, castle and grave. And we're with our entire team today. We have 16 people on a bus. <laughs> See a dead man's house. You see, the library isn't the only historical building that's named after Northup. We had heard of another building called the Macmillan Castle. Back in the day, the Macmillan Castle served as a sort of clubhouse for Northup and the settler elite. But on first sight, I think the term Kerso is quite a reach. Yeah, it's like a big stone house with faded mabati on the roof. It's set in the middle of agricultural land. Pineapple and sisal fields, if I remember correctly. It's only one story tall. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the first thing. Isn't a castle supposed to be really tall? I mean, for sure the library is a much grander building than this. Castle. <laughs> the Macmillan Museum, as it's now called, is run by the Muka Muku Farmers Cooperative. It's a fairly rundown building. There's not really any furniture inside, and the floorboards are mostly rotten. There are a few plaques, mostly commemorating some old aristocrats who were imprisoned in the castle during the Second World War. Is that why we had to go down into the bunkers? It was part of the experience, part of the tour. So this looks like it's the access to the bunkers where this guy was a prisoner. Oh my god, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, yeah, I'm getting very anxious. So we're underground, um, inside the bunkers underneath the castle. And apparently these were used to store, well, to hold prisoners. Um, Italian, the rock over there. Uh, given the condition of the wood we've seen upstairs, I don't know how safe it is to be down here, so I'm just really concerned about the 16 people we've held. Yo, it says a lot about a man when you find out he built a prison under his clubhouse. Most of the stories that our tour guides from Mukamoku knew about were from after Macmillan's time. In fact, there's an old Hollywood movie called Murambo starring Grace Kelly that was shot on this farm. Wait, wait, I have to show you a bit of this trailer. Mugambo, the new word in motion picture entertainment. Mugambo, unforgettable adventure in untamed Africa. Africa, known for centuries as the white man's graveyard. Get into its... <laughs> oh, make it stop! 
More importantly, Tom Boyer, our beloved trade unionist, educationist, independence activist, and later cabinet minister, was born here in Oldonio Sabok, and he grew up on this farm. It was in this building that the plot to arrest Jomo Kenyatta, who went on to become Kenya's first president, was apparently hatched. Siokawu, I mean, Chao was talking about about mm. how like a significant thing like this it's can just... now today be a rubbish pit. Yeah. And then people have no idea yes. the history of it and the trauma. It reminds me of something that Dr. Joyce Nyairo wrote in a book that we keep coming back to um, with all our work. She says that one of the most glaring fault lines in the construction of the Kenyan nation is not the absence of memory, but rather the deliberate institutionalization of amnesia. You see, in that castle, we didn't really find much left of Macmillan, other than this giant outdoor bathtub, I guess. But one thing we did know is that Macmillan was buried on this property. He died abroad, but had left instructions for his body to be brought back to Kenya and buried at the top of Mount Kilimambogo, overlooking his estate. Is this it, then? It's a pretty steep hike from the castle, and the men who were enlisted to carry Northrop's body only made it about halfway up the mountain. Still got a pretty good view, though. So it's a giant piece of stone that looks it's a little bit like granite. Um, and it's sitting at this point that should overlook, I guess, Donyosa book, but it's overgrown with trees. And it's right next to another plaque that is for Louise Ardeca, who we think might have been his servant. People often ask us, are you going to change the name of the library? Do you plan to modernize the space, decolonize the collection, make the library useful for all Nairobians? As in, make it a palace for the people? A palace for the people? <laughs> That's the thing. In 1931, Lucy Macmillan built a library in honor of her husband. She built a palace for her people to the exclusion of ours. And right now, the library is still stuck in that time. And we do want to rename the place, but to do that, we have to change the space. So, respectfully, we're gonna say goodbye to Macmillan and move forward. We have a lot of work to do.
Thanks for listening to A Palace of the People. I am Wanjiro Koinange. And I am Angela Washuka. If you want to find out more about BookBank, visit our website at bookbank.org and join us next time as we explore a fascinating pocket of this lovely city. This episode was produced by me, Wanjiro Koinange, Angela Washuka, and Mae Francis. Siokawa Mutonga is our lead researcher and our resident queen of fact-checking. Additional research on this episode is by Brandon Aura. Sound design by Anthony Kiringe and Mae Francis. This episode is dedicated to E.S. Atieno, our beloved, beloved historian. You can find learning resources to go along with this episode at bookbank.org slash podcast. Most public spaces are currently closed due to COVID-19. But when they do reopen, you can visit all branches Monday to Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. We also give library tours, so visit our website for details. This podcast is supported by the British Council with special thanks to Owa, Judy Aldrich, and the Mukamuku Farmers Cooperative. You are listening to African Sun by Tetushani. And shout out to Eric Klinenberg, who inspired the name of this podcast with his book, Palaces for the People. Thanks for listening.